You're listening to Wake Up Call. I'm your host, Christina Previtt. If we haven't met before, I was a divorce lawyer in New Jersey for 15 years. I'm currently the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a divorce law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I'm talking to people who have overcome their fears and forged their own path in life. They had a wake-up call to make a radical change. They did it, and so can you. My guest today is Robin Young. Robin is a financial advisor by trade and the founder of Behaving Wealthy. After working as a Wall Street executive and financial advisor managing over a billion dollars for high-worth individuals for 12 years, Robin witnessed the differences between income earners and wealthy people. Robin created Behaving Wealthy as a movement to help the emerging wealthy turn their income into financial freedom. Robin is committed to guiding people on their personal journey to worth and wealth. Thank you for joining me today, Robin. I am so excited to be here, Christina. Thank you again. Um, I love to have interesting people like you who on my show who are successful, self-aware, interested in personal development. But even beyond that, I really love to talk to people like you who have overcome significant adversity at times in their lives because it's almost a testament to your strength that you were able to be successful despite having all of those challenges. And for my listeners today, we're going to talk about what those challenges were today. We're going to talk about your business, but you're so much more than that. And I also have to say that when people look at you and people can Google you and look at your website, and I want to say this to you as well, because I don't think I've ever said this to you, but I've always admired you because you present yourself as such a polished, classy, professional, intelligent woman and very attractive. But I know from my personal conversations with you that you didn't come from a background of privilege. You didn't come from a background where, you know, you were necessarily nurtured to be the person that you are today. You really, um, you did that on your own. And that's the stuff that I love to hear about someone like you, who's not had had an easy time of things, but has turned out to be this wild success. So, well, thank, thank you, Christina. That that was just a, your kind words mean a lot to me. Thank you because we have interacted, and um, my personality or my essence is what matters most to me. So the fact that we've connected there, um, even before all of the professional connections, really matters to me. So thank you for saying that. You're welcome, and it is so much a part of who you are. And we've talked. I, I have. You know, I've shared some of my personal challenges as well. And I think, as I said, when people look at us, they sort of think that we're successful, we're polished, we're together. We have our, I can't curse, so we have our stuff together. Um, that, that that was probably just the result of good child rearing, right? And it's, and it's, this isn't to put down any, any mistakes that our parents have made, but it's not always the case. So... I like to say, let's start in the beginning. And for you, can you share some of those challenges that you experienced as a kid? Because you didn't come from, you know, the white picket fence background. I did not. And to put it in perspective, to put my childhood in perspective, there's a test that psychologists give children, and it's called the ACES test. And it's, it used to be a test of 10 questions 
Now I think they've expanded it to 12. But effectively, how you score on this test really determines what kind of trauma you have, you've experienced as a child. And then that's a predictor of what kind of success or, unfortunately, for failure you have in life. And typically what we've seen is that people who score over 7 are typically on death row. So just to put that in perspective, and so it's out of 10, when I was given the test, it was 10. Now it's up to 12. And when I was given the test, I scored an 8. So when that was that? Good. How old were um, you? This is when I, was, I was probably, you know, 10 or 12. And some mm. of the questions relate to the types of trauma that you experienced. Were your parents any type of addicts? Were you molested? Did you come from po- poverty? I mean, just you know, the statistics that we hear about. And so uh, there were 10, and of the 10, I was a yes on eight of them. So that puts what you're saying in perspective. And so the typical trajectory of a person with seven or more is death row. So it's obviously not productive citizens. And to your point, I have avoided that trajectory and been on a journey of not just wealth, but really of worth. And that's what I'm most proud of because, to your point, it was very tough to face these, um, my real circumstances and say I'm more than that. So that, that puts it in perspective. So you're correct. Well, let me ask you, when you took that test when you were 10, did they tell you what it was and what your score was? Were you aware no. of it? No, but because um, of I was part of the desegregation program in St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I grew up. So they just give you all of these different types of tests, particularly because if you fast forward, I, I know I probably took it again in, in high school. I did very well. I was in in high school. I was um, student body president, and my high school at that time had never even had a woman, let alone a black person, as a student body president. So they were kind of like, "Why? what's happening here? Like, how did this happen? Particularly because my background was so challenged. Yeah, you weren't, that wasn't supposed to be you. That It wasn't supposed to be me. It wasn't supposed to be me. And you said earlier, Um, you said, how did you do it or do it on your own? And I will say that my part of it is that I never give up. I am like a dog with a bone. And I've always been so critical of um, how I participate in a situation. So I never used my situation as an excuse. I always say, how did I contribute to it and what can I change? And because of that, that drive, if you will, and that ability to own and accept my own responsibility. There were so many people that helped me. My, my friends, parents helped me, Christina. My teachers helped me. The administration at my schools helped me. Our superintendent wrote my recommendation for college. So it was this thing where people saw that I was trying so hard and they helped me. So together, I was able to overcome many, many challenges. Well, let's back up a little bit because I know some of your background, but my listeners necessarily do not. So why don't you tell us what was your childhood like? Did, did you did you come from a single parent home? I know you had some challenges with your mom. Can you tell us about those things? 
I'm happy to. And then I will lead into my money story because my money story really starts in childhood. So I'm happy to, to tell you more about those challenges. So um, my, my, my mother was an addict and my father was killed um, early. And I was effectively abandoned, obviously, by both of my parents. So I bounced from my grandmother's home, sometimes back to my mom, to my friends. So my house, um, my, my housing experience was so traumatic. Like, I don't believe I probably spent more than a month in one place. So it's like, okay, well, let's go here now. This isn't, this isn't <laughs> sustainable. Let's go over here. And so the neglect that I experienced on every level, but it also set me up for, um, I was, I was open for predators, molestation, and um, just not being treated well. So any type of, you know, when parents sit down and they think about anything that they don't want their kids to go through, those are the things that I went through. Yes, those are the things that parents try to shield their children from. That's exactly right. And I didn't have parents to do that. And I do want to state now that my mom is clean and sober and we have a great relationship now. Um, And that's actually one of my greatest successes that I was able to forgive her and really accept that my childhood is part of my purpose. And so I'm really happy about that. But yes, my, my childhood was very traumatic. And I still have like, um, there's still remnants of it now. Like it's very difficult for me to sleep um, to this day because of that. But for the most part, I've been able to kind of get over it. Yeah. I, 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 I'm kind of um, cringing a little bit at the the expression "get over it" because I don't think it's something you ever get over, but I think mm-hmm. it's just something you accept. Um, you know, I've accepted that with some of the challenges in my own childhood that you accept it. And uh, a coach, David Nagel, taught me that if you can see the gift in it, you know, because there is a gift in it, you just have to see what yeah. it is. Um, I think once you can see that, that really changes things too. I agree with you, and to, to, you're absolutely right. So if I were to define how I see get over it, I mean, squarely looking it in the face and saying, what is this? What was that? Why did it happen to me? And how did it really help me become the person that I am today? And all of those experiences from, you know, not being protected, not being loved. I mean, when you think about, um, I didn't know I was lovable until I was probably in my late 30s. Yeah, so on the grand scheme of things, that's late in life. That's really late in life, particularly because it was a shock to me. And it was, it was, I had to do so much internal work to get there. And part of the reason I had to do that was because obviously when something isn't working in your life, my first question is, well, why isn't it working and how did I contribute to that? And it always went back to, well, what, what am I doing here? And then, you, of course, behavior starts in the mind. So it's, okay, like, why don't I feel loved? Oh, I know why I, didn't. I don't feel loved because I was never loved. And then I had to understand God's love for me. And then once I understood God's love for me, then I loved me. And then then other people could love me. Our most impressionable years are really from birth through age seven. 
So yes. during that time, we're really absorbing everything that's around us and we're not rejecting anything. So we're just accepting no. everything that we've been taught. So if we're being taught that we're not lovable, if we're being taught that, um, you know, we're not being nurtured and we're not being um, love and nurturing is not being demonstrated to us, then we start to learn that it's because we don't deserve that. So let me ask you, how old were you when your father passed? Speaking of seven, I was actually um, in between my seventh and eighth birthday. And before that, was what did, did you, was your father an addict? He wasn't an addict, but he this is so such a, a stereotypical situation. But he was a drug dealer, and he went to jail, and they, I mean, it was just tragic, and it was just one of those situations. He did love me, um, but loved me as much as he could. He was in California, so I spent my summers with him. Um, but I was more of a trophy for him than just um, a child to be nurtured. Um, so my relationship with him was one that when he was available for visits, I visited him. And when I was visiting him, uh, my stepmother would um, primarily be my guardian, if you will. But he was happy that I was there. But it was more to like, oh, this little pretty doll, doll, I'll sit, you know, this is my little trophy, so I'll sit, you look pretty, you're the pretty dress, and, you know, just sit here quietly. And what's really interesting, you talk about um, impressionable and just accepting. I am not a trophy. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I am inquisitive, I'm very curious, um, I'm very non-traditional, um, as a as a person and as a woman, so you can just imagine um, the messaging that I received from my father that um, my worth came from being quiet and pretty, and that's not me. I'm 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 not quite a tomboy, but I'm very outdoorsy and very kind of like gritty, and um, but at the same time, I'm also I'm a talker and I'm I'm a questioner and. Those are, those are things that were judged and not celebrated. Yeah, I can relate to that. And you said that you didn't really start to engage in self-love until you were in your late 30s. But then how do you explain how were you able to be so successful before that? What was driving that? So I'm so glad you asked that question. So the work that I do now, Christina, is really about worth and wealth. And I would say that trajectory, that journey of worth and wealth, if I were to break it up, I would say from 15 to about 35, it was really about wealth. And then because I still felt um, unloved, then the journey became about worth, and now the journey is both. And let me just give you what I mean by that. So I uh, mentioned to you that I obviously grew up in poverty, but what was interesting is I was um, in a, a desegregation program, which meant that they bust kids from the city or, you know, kind of the, the lower-class neighborhoods to wealthy neighborhood. So my high school was in one of the wealthiest zip codes in the state of Missouri. And um, so my, my, during the day, I was surrounded by wealth and privilege. And at night, I was surrounded by poverty and um, oppression, if you will, just, you know, just 
myself, it was tough. But I had to live in this dichotomy. So during the day, I saw, you know, wealth, and in the evenings, I saw poverty. But I can tell you when my wealth journey began. My wealth journey began one day. I had a, a project, um, and one of my classmates who lived in that neighborhood, that wealthy neighborhood, invited me over to spend the night to finish our project. And we left school that particular day. I head toward the buses, and she's like, where are you going? And I was like, to the buses. She's like, no, 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 over here. She's pointing to the parking lot. We walked to her car. Now, I was still 15. She had just turned 16, maybe the week before. We walked to this beautiful Mustang convertible, and I was like, your parents let you drive their car? She's like, no, this is my car. I'm floored, Christina, floored. Yeah. So we drive to her home, and her home was on this beautiful cul-de-sac, but her home was kind of at the top of the hill, if you will. And it was like, well, it was like a cul-de-sac, but then, you know, the landscaping made the, the home kind of on a hill. And I was just like, you live here? Because, I don't, I mean, listen, I'm dating myself, but this was in the days of, you know, Robin Lynch, Lynch of um, um, the Richard and Famous. Yes, That's lifestyles all. We didn't have the, the internet, famous. right? Exactly. Yes. Like, we didn't have, we didn't have, like, the internet that they have now. So we didn't know. If you didn't grow up that way, you just didn't really know yes. what was out there. And so it was, or it was poverty and then the rich lives of the famous. And then I walk and I see my, my classmates home and I'm like, oh my God, you live here? She, her house has three car garage. I have never seen a three car garage home. I just never seen it. And I was like, wow, you live here. We, we pull in, um, we go into the kitchen on the island. It's just, I mean, a feast. We're t- I'm talking sandwiches and fruit and chips. And it was just like, all, I'm like, oh, your, your parents are having a party today? She's like, oh, no, that's our afternoon snack. I'm like, what? <laughs> then we go up to a room, beautifully decorated room, huge room. We do our work. We come down for um, family dinner, which I've never had on a daily basis. You have a sort of kind of Easter and maybe like Thanksgiving, but not like dinner. Her parents are, are, are sitting. We're sitting around the table. We're talking about our project, Christina. And all of a sudden... Um, her dad goes, well, we're not going to answer these last two questions. You need to go to the library and, and finish up your project. And he sees me look at my watch, and he's like, I'm not talking about the public library. I'm talking about the library in the other room, Christina. I was like, oh, my God. And I'll tell you why that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because in that moment, I understood wealth, that wealth is the Experience of your life because I would have gotten an A on that project alone. But let me tell you what I would have had to do. Get on a public bus, go to the public library, get the librarian to help me, take the public bus home. Maybe I had food. Maybe the lights would be on. Maybe it would be safe in my home. Then I'd go to school early, talk to the librarian, finish up my work, and then I'd, I'd get my A. My classmate, on the other hand, all she had to do was go home to this, you know, well-stocked, well-resourced place from food to light, yeah, to books, encyclopedias, resource materials, and that was her experience. And at that moment, I said, okay, who has wealth, how do you get it, and how do you keep it? And then that became my journey and my quest, my ambition, until I hit 35. Yeah, I love that story, and I can relate so much to a lot of that. Um, but I do want to back up a little bit, because... 
you had an opportunity to see that everybody doesn't live the way that you were living, right? Yes, yes. It's always been interesting to me how there's a cycle of poverty and how, yes. and you know, I guess we could say there's a cycle of, of being wealthy too. There's a, a yes. cycle of affluence of too. Because whatever. I call inf- it the wealthy inheritance because everybody thinks about wealthy inheritance as assets, but it's also um, a mindset. Absolutely. And that's really what I want to talk about, just touch on for a minute. Sure. Because I had that experience too. You know, when you grow up poor, that's what you see around you. But mm-hmm. when you do get a glimpse of another lifestyle, you see that everybody doesn't live the way that we're living. Everybody doesn't live in poverty. And then there can be a, a, a switch in your mind where you think, well, I could have that. I don't have to have this. I could have that. And you're also doing it often without loving, nurturing parents or whoever telling you, you can do it. You know, you can have a better life. You can study hard, go to college, start a business, whatever the case may be. You know, have a great job and you can get yourself out of poverty. We don't always have people telling us that. And I'm I'm guessing, and you can share that with us, I'm guessing that you didn't have a lot of that from your immediate family encouraging you that's a very good point so i did in fact one of the to your point about the cycle of poverty but the cycle of poverty is not just your immediate family it's your neighborhood it's your extended family so i received a lot of judgment a lot of ridicule for um speaking proper english for studying immediately when i um got home for trying to, to improve myself. So I not only did I not get encouraged to do it, I was ridiculed yes. for, for trying to do it. So that was that was kind of a double force, a double bond of trying to pull me down, if you will. But I will say that this is where um, people helped me. So whereas on one side, and you spoke of David Nagel, which is actually where we met, um, David talks about the law of polarity, and the law of polarity is a universal law that states, you know, for every up there's a down, for every left there's a right. And so let's use that imagery as a left and right if you think of kind of like pulling a rope, if you will. Um, let's say the my, um, ex- my family and my neighborhood was pulling me left. Well, the beautiful thing about how God sustained me during this time was that there were equal, if not more people that were administrators at my school, um, parents of my, my friends, my pastor that was pulling me right. And they saw, and where I came in is I would say to them, I want to go to college, for example. So they would say, this is what you need to do, and I will help you do it. You do this part, and I'll help you with that part. And I always did my part. And so because of that, people helped me. So to your point, I did get that kind of negative reinforcement, but I also got so much positive. Plus my own tenacity helped me pull pull me to the right and keep me on that successful trajectory. Do you see your challenged background as a gift? I see it as part of it is a gift. Yes, but I actually see it as part of my 
my purpose. So I believe that God created, and whomever you call, you know, Christina, your listeners, whomever you call your higher power power, it honestly doesn't matter to me what, what you call your source. I call my source God, I call my source universe, I call my source source, so I just will say those terms. But I believe that God has a unique purpose for each and every one of us, and I know for sure that my unique purpose is to help people build wealth from their worth. So because of my unique purpose, which is build wealth from your worth, which I'll explain to you in a moment, but that meant that the contrast, I had to experience the contrast of worth, which is unworthiness. So my background was about unworthiness. And so I could actually go through the process of turning that unworthiness into true worthiness. Because at first, when I was on my quest for just wealth, I was just achieving wealth. But that was not worth. Worth is you don't have to be perfect. You are good enough. You deserve it. It doesn't matter what you do. It's literally you are, we have a God-given right to be on this planet and to have pleasure and freedom and peace. And so I had to go through my childhood for this journey so I could help other people with their worth and their wealth. So it was absolutely, um, I would say, divine. That's the word that I use for it. I love that. So what was initially, way back, what was your in, uh, initial desire to become a financial advisor? Why did you select that field? So, well, as soon as I, I'm telling you that I can still in my mind see sitting in around the table with my, my friend, uh, my classmate, and her parents and looking over to the door that was the library and walking into that library. I even get sure that that's how tell it to you right now. And I remember seeing the uh, encyclopedias. My grandmother had R. Not all letters. She had the R encyclopedia. And I remember looking at the, the array of just resources and seeing from A to Z in the encyclopedia. And I was like, wow. That was like my first kind of um, vision, if you will, of wealth and just the experience of how she got her A and how I had to get my A. And at that moment, I was like, I will master wealth. I will. So that was really my, my that started my journey to um, wealth management. And then at some point in your evolution, you started to see a distinction between I guess, wealth and, and just making money. So talk to me more about I, that. I did, and it was part personal and part professional. I'll start with the professional, and then I'll end with the personal. So professionally, um, the job that I had right before I started my company, I was a vice president for um, the number one retirement um, financial services in, a company in the, in the country, and I managed a billion dollars for over 500 millionaires. And um, all I did all day, Christina, was put portfolios together that would help people pay for their goals in the future. That was literally, it was like, wake up, put this portfolio together, explain it to my client, next, repeat. I mean, that was my life. And one of the things that I also did 
I did seminars. I would go to various uh, associations, and I was like their lunch speaker, for example. And so I was interacting with um, what I would consider overachievers, you know, just professional people that want to do well. They're earning six figures. They have a good life. But what was really interesting to me was that so many people in those rooms couldn't become my client because you have to have a, a, a minimum of $2 million with us. Not just period, like not home equity, a million dollar, two million dollars of investable. So that meant you probably had five because you had a couple with us, a couple with other people, other banks, etc. So yes, which is not most people, right? And so, but what was really interesting is that you would, if you would, if you would look at the the audiences of people that I spoke to, you would assume that they were those people. And every time I would do a seminar, I always um, do one-on-one sessions after that for people who are interested in doing assessments and just asking me questions. And what was so interesting is all of those people earned really good incomes. You know, over six figures, the trajectory, they would be considered successful. And I was like, but they were not on track to experience wealth. Like, they needed their paycheck. And I was like, what's happening here that all of these high-income earners are not turning their income into wealth? What's the disconnect between income and wealth? And I became fascinated between that about that. So what I did is I went back, and for two straight years, Christina, I asked every client that I had, because, you know, you're on a rotation with clients, and every client... Of those 500, I went through and asked them a few questions. How did you make your wealth? How do you keep it? And tell me something interesting about wealth for you. And five things emerged. And and I'll tell you what those five things are. I'll tell you quickly, and then we can talk about them in a moment. But the first one was that my wealthy people um, always knew their money. I call it they know it. They know what's happening in their finances. Number two, they earned enough to pay for what they wanted. Number three, they kept enough. Number four, they grew it responsibly. And number five, they shared it. And what was interesting is all of the audiences who were high-income earners never did those five. And I was like, wait, here's an opportunity. And Behaving Wealthy was born. And that my movement is to make sure that high-income earners can turn that income into financial security, financial freedom, and and wealth. And then, at the same time, Christina, personally, I was on this journey of, I had achieved, I was the, um, I had two-minute commercials on CBS during this time representing my firm. So I was at the height of success, but I was not happy. And I was like, what's happening here? We have to fix this because you have everything you ever wanted. You have money, you have tra- you know, travel, you have recognition, you have title, you have everything, but you don't feel worthy. And that began my worthiness kind of trek. And what do you think that was about? Well, because worthy, so wealth and worth are separate, but they, they do interconnect. Worthiness is about sitting in a dark room. So, and the reason I say dark room is because you don't know what's in it. You don't know if you have, you know, a $2,000 mattress or the latest gadget in the room. Um, You don't know if (laughs) the um, home is in a million-dollar 
a neighborhood or if it's in a motel. But if you're if you close if you turn off the lights in a room, you can't see anything and you just sit with you. Are you do you love who you are? Are you confident in why you're here? Do you know that you're gonna be okay? And because of my childhood I did not. I needed to perform to get external validation. And external validation is helpful to a point, but at the end of the day, internal validation is worthiness. Internal validation is just knowing your heart and knowing your kindness and knowing your connection with people, which is why when you introduced me today and your comment to me, which was so touching to me, was, Robin, it's who you are, not what you look like. That's why it matters because... Anything could happen to my business. Anything could happen to anything that's external, but it won't change who I am. Yeah. So did you have this moment where it was sort of like an epiphany where you realized that you didn't have the self-worth that you thought you had or that you wanted? I mean, at some no, point you become was, aware of that, right? Well, right. So I... So I am a I'm a numbers person, and so I'm I'm results oriented. Everything I do is about outcome, and what I, the reason that's critical to understand is because and, and outcome can be tangible and intangible, but it's do I have what I want? And if the answer is no, then my inquisitive nature it will ask immediately why not, and then the next question is what what am I doing to contribute to the why not? And so that led me to therapy. And I started therapy, and what would happen is we would, my therapist, love her, um, she would, she was an excellent therapist. Um, it was very challenging in the beginning because she was very typical, and I'd say something, and she'd say, well, why did that happen? No, I came to you for you to tell me. And she's yeah. like, no, what do you think? And that, what it did is it built a muscle for and- me to go deeply when I wasn't with her. But what she allowed me to do in our time together was see how situations would play out. And I would see how, well, why did you say that? Why did you feel that when they did that to you? But because I had been abused growing up, I was used to being abused. And so when you talk it out, I call it when you speak your monsters, they, they lose their power. And, you can, and what's left is this moment of, like, I deserve more than that. And then you say, well, how do I show up in a way that I get more than that? And if you do that every single day, eventually you get to where I am today, where you naturally understand that people have their own things going on, and you have your own things going on, and there's reactions and there's responses. And so you let the reaction happen, but then you control the response. That's it. Sounds so easy. It is very simple. It's not easy. Yeah. It's very simple. The, the difficult part is that you have to retrain yourself to stop. So let's just say, for example, I'll give you a perfect example. One of my really good friends um, is, is, is in the middle of a health scare. And she's, I love her, even talking about it in this moment, tear at tear up. My, my reaction to the news last week was sadness and disappointment and fear. And I let it happen because it's natural. But my response, 
and I gave myself a couple of hours of just processing that. And then my response is, a few of us are getting together, and we're going to, um, her surgery is in two and a half weeks, and we're going to spend time together three times before that in a space of, like, thinking good thoughts and, like, celebrating what's going to happen afterwards and all of that. And so that's the difference of you do the work every day, because I'm a big believer in baby steps because they lead to quantum leaps. You do the work every single day, just take one step forward, and then you look up and you have the life that you want every day. That's a wonderful segue into another topic that you and I have talked about where you really live life on your own terms. I've often talked in the past and I've written a blog on whether there's sort of a script for life, you know, a a template, if you will, where we're trained to graduate high school, go to college, get married, have 2.5 kids, buy a house. And it just, life sometimes just seems to follow this trajectory that we kind of do things that we feel like we're just supposed to do. Um, But you really don't live that way. You've shared with me your choice to um, not have children. I don't want to speak for you, so you can share that. But other things, you gave me other examples of how you really have curated your life. And you don't follow a script. Can you share that with us? Happy to. I I don't, Christina. But it, to get, today, I am so confident and comfortable in who I am. That was not the case decades ago. So, and and let me put it in perspective. And not only was it not the case, but again, it was not only not the case, but I was um, ridiculed and judged because of it. So. What was really interesting, and this is probably for another podcast, but this is, it's like my life, I was, my networks were very traditional. I was in finance. Um, All of the kind of um, organizations that I was a part of were very traditional places. So my natural network before I started my company were traditional. And what people do is, you, you know, as a woman, you meet a, a, a great man who can provide for you. You um, get married. You have children. And in my circles, half of them stayed at home. The other half stepped back from their careers and raised kids. And, and then that was the life. And then you, you, you know, stayed married for 30 to 50 years, and then you die, and then that's life. Yeah, that's well, the script. Yeah, exactly. So the way it happened initially was that, so I, the love of my life in my 20s, um, we were together for a while, and um, and he said to me, he's like, I'm ready to propose, but I'm uncomfortable because of your kid, but your kid vision. I want babies today, as in yesterday, and I'm not sure when you do. And because I've always been very upfront about the fact that kids are not my number one priority. There's a life that I, there's something I want to do with my purpose and I want to see the world. And then we can talk about children. And so we've been together for a while. So he was like, I can't 
near you until you're, you're ready to have kids. And I was like, can you give me five years? He's like, no, I can give you a month. And he, I was like, wow. And we love each other. Yes. And I was like, he's like, we've been together for years. So no. And And, can I ask you, how old were you you when that happened? 27, 28. Oh, and that was young. That was young. Yeah. Can I ask you how old you are now? Yeah, of course. I'm 44. Okay. So at that point in your life, did you think that you were going to have children or? I kept pushing it out. I just, I kept saying five years. I kept saying, just give me five years. There's a few more things I want to do. And then we broke up. My next relationship did the exact same thing. We broke up. And then my third significant relationship did the exact same thing, and we broke up. And at so around 42, 43, I was like, I keep saying five years. So I think I'm, I should just say maybe I'll adopt at some point. Because there is a part of me that wouldn't, because so many people helped me when I was younger, I really want to help other maybe maybe adopt or other foster kids some something where I can give back the same way that I was give you know was given to um, but yeah I I just started to realize you know what no I don't want that right now and I was willing to walk away from the loves of my life that had to be difficult it was so difficult because remember the first time I didn't feel worthy. So I felt like I had to be someone else to be loved. But I still had this strong, strong, strong desire for um, for kind of my vision of my life. And so that luckily over... And I've always been very honest about my struggles with people. So I wasn't like... Like I would tell my significant other, you know, listen, I, I'm, I'm not sure. And I, I guess if you know me, you... And you know yourself, I guess you could see it. But the, 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 the thing that was so interesting is it just never worked out. And then finally, thank God, it, it didn't work out that way. And thankfully, I'm here. And now I live the life I want to. I travel. I live on the road sometimes. I go overseas. I just finished seeing off the of state. I mean, I just live this. I live the I have an amazing life. Like, I live in D.C. I fly to L.A. for, I'm a huge football fan. I'm a huge Rams fan. I fly to L.A. every home game so I can just watch my Rams. I'm in North Carolina right now. I just bought them on Sunday. I mean, I literally live the life that I want. It took me going through work and wealth in order to be able to live that life. And a huge part of that, and for people listening, I hope they get something out of this. You have to really believe that you can have that. Because a lot of us will sit around and say, well, I'd love to go to Paris every Christmas or whatever, you know, go to L.A. for a game. Um, but I don't think a lot of people really believe that they could have those things. They have sort of a restricted thinking. I think you're absolutely right. The difference um, I wouldn't say that I always believe I can have it. I know for sure that I'll die without it. So I keep trying. That's right. So what are your goals now? What's next for yes. you? 
Okay, so I want to see every country. I used to say every country. Now I'm saying every safe country. So, because a lot of times I travel alone. Sometimes I travel with people. Sometimes um, I travel alone. So I, I want, you know, I have to be careful and, and safe. So I want to see um, every country and what that means and see every country. I like to experience people because what I've learned about and through all of my travels, there's so many things um, where we're, exactly the same. It doesn't matter if we're in Europe or America or the Caribbean or South America. We're the same in so many ways. And then we're so different in other ways. And I love understanding those similarities and differences and connecting in the similarities and learning from the differences. So when I go someplace, I just kind of immerse myself in and learn something and, and just I come away better like and, and expand it. So see the world is one. Um, number two, I'm on a mission to help people on their personal journey of worth and wealth. What does that mean? That means that I use my framework is called freedom, and I use the word freedom as an acronym. So the F stands for fitness. The R stands for relationships. The E stands for expertise, the second E, experiences, the D, divinity, the O, others, and the M, millionaire. My goal is to help um, as many people as possible live their vision of freedom. I don't care what that vision is, but I want them to have the worth to feel worthy enough for it and the wealth to pay for it. That is my kind of purpose on this life, in this life. So I know that I'm asking you to really sum up maybe something that's more complex, but what are the biggest mistakes that you see people doing to sort of get in their own way and avoid their their wealth that they could achieve? Yes. Yes. I actually, there are three main mistakes that I see people making. One, believing that if I could just earn more, my problems would go away. And it's not about earning it, it's about keeping it. And it's not keeping it, hoarding it. It's about keeping it and spending it across all of your goals. So earning it and earning it in a way where some of it goes to your funds, some of it goes to your current living expenses, some of it goes to retirement, some of it goes to emergency, some of it goes to elder care, some of it goes to redoing your house. So it's like keeping it and keeping it very strategically for freedom for your, you know, kind of the acronym freedom. That's the number one, thinking that income is the end-all, be-all. It is not. It's earn it and keep it. Number two, the second mistake that I see um, is what I call the as-soon-as syndrome. That as soon as this happens, I'll go on that trip. As soon as I get another client, as soon as my kids get out of school, as soon as I pay off this debt, as soon as I fill in the blank, and so you end up waiting and waiting and waiting. A year passes, five years pass, a decade, and you look up and you don't have the life that you want. And it's because it's, you use the as soon as um, syndrome. And then the third one is what I call the broke belief barrier. That's that people believe, I don't have enough to start building wealth. I'm too broke right now to even think about wealth, and that's not the case. Start today, $25, $100, $250, and what you do is you start there, and you double it in a year or two, 
And when you, by the time, let's say, three or four years um, have passed, you're right where you need to be, and you all, you've already built the habit, behaving wealthy, <laughs> um, so that not only are you living the life because you're not doing as soon as, you're not waiting, and you're doing what you can now, and you are very strategic about what you want your money to do, and you end up having a life of freedom. So you're completely self-employed right now? I am, for seven and a half years. That's wonderful. And mm-hmm. how, who is your ideal client? How would you describe him or her? Yes, my ideal client um, is a business owner that has been in business for a while, and the business earns six figures, but they aren't paying themselves six figures. And the reason that's critical is because they're, they're, they're working in their business, but their business isn't worthy of them. It's the business isn't worthy of all of the sacrifices, all of the time, all of the money, all of the talent they've put in. And so what I specialize in is helping um, my client pull out that six-figure paycheck so that they can live their vision of freedom. In fact, what I wanted to do for your audience, if it's okay, um, what I would love to do is I've, I've opened up my calendar for seven spots over the next week um, to do um, conversations. I call them paycheck pay raises, and it's a, um, a strategy session where we discuss, we do a mini assessment of where you are and how do we increase your paycheck from your company. Um, and in doing so, we say what's the next best action you can take to consistently increase your cash flow from your business and then let that filter out to you. And if your audience is in, interested in one of the seven spots, they can go to chatwithrobin.com, chatwithrobin.com, and Robin is spelled with an I, chatwithrobin.com. And if um, my session is available, they can, they can get on my calendar. So you really um, do, you're not just telling people what stock to buy. You're, obviously you have the financial advisor aspect of it, but it sounds like there's really more of a coaching and mentoring aspect as well. I actually don't custody assets any longer. I have um, an assessment, a software assessment that people will, um, you know, you essentially, we receive all of your personal and business information. So everything from when do you want to retire, what does your lifestyle look like, and we calculate your retirement numbers, your emergency numbers, your elder care numbers, your fund numbers, and then we also collect your business data. So um, what do you sell? How much is it? How are you paid? What are your expenses? And then we create what I call a worthy profit margin. So that every business knows what that worthy profit margin is so that you can pay yourself that six figure. I call it your freedom paycheck. And it's all based on your worthy profit margin. And so I have a software that actually calculates all of that. And then once you know that number, then every single month what I do with people is we have these 30-day challenges of increasing your worth. Now, the worth is interesting because the worth is actually in your business, so we increase your sales conversions. We increase your um, prices. We increase your margins. We increase what you pay yourself. 
I'm different than a business coach. I am not a business coach. We use your numbers, your business numbers, to dictate how your business strategy should be implemented. I love that. So this is actually very niche. I, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody who does exactly what you do. Yeah, see, that's why that put me here. That's why I was on my journey of what worth and on my journey of wealth for this very reason. So you're absolutely right. There are very few resources in the marketplace for small business owners that help them say, what do I need to charge so that I earn this? What, what kind of return on investment do I get from every expense? My um, assessment literally tells you what every expense should the return on investment for every expense, and it's so customized for what you need your business to do. So ultimately, I always ask people, is your business worthy of you? And if it's not, then come and talk to me, which is what we do on your, your paycheck pay raise session, and we'll get you on a journey. And it's a journey, Christina. This is not quick fix or anything like that. It's every it's 30 days. It is, but it's every 30 days. Let's increase one. Let's increase one or three things. One, I always get people on, their, on track to their first million. So how much more can we add to your assets? Number two, how much more can you pay yourself, which means your business is earning more? And number three, how much more life and a freedom life can you enjoy? Those are the three things we do every 30 days. And I don't care if it's an inch, but if you think about it, if we take baby steps every month, think of where we'll be in a year, in five years, in 10 years. Yeah, I would encourage people listening to reach out to you and take advantage of the opportunity to have the strategy session. I think a lot of people think, well, if I don't have a ton of money in the bank or if I don't have a lot of money to invest, that this is not a worthwhile exercise for me. But it really is. You have to start somewhere. I've been trying to emphasize that. So I appreciate you making those points. Um, we Absolutely. Have- we have a couple minutes left. Um, I'd like to end off with sort of a Proust questionnaire, so I'll fit in as much as I can. What what advice would you give your 15-year-old self? That's a great question. The advice that I would give my 15-year-old self is you're worth it, and every day I want you to make a list, and I do this with myself currently, and I do this with my clients. Every day, make a list of how valuable you are to this world. And I want you to make a list of five points every single day. And I don't care if you have to repeat them and start to believe them. That's what I would tell my my 15-year-old self. Um, What do you think is the perfect idea of happiness? Peace would be number one, where you can sit and just have some contentment on who you are, the decisions you made today, um, and looking forward to more of that. And looking around and saying, I have what I want. Like, I don't, like every, I have, Christine, I have the life that I want. I want more of the life that I have, but I have the life that I want. So looking around and saying, I have it, I just want more of So gratitude, basically gratitude, right? Yes, absolutely. 
Well, thank you, Robin, for being so candid, for sharing those personal stories with us and letting us see your personal evolution. And thank you also for offering my listeners a free strategy session. I hope that they will take advantage of that. And thank you for listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. We'll see you next time.